Hi, everyone. On this episode of the podcast, I had a discussion with Tom Conway, an instructor in the English department here at CSU. While he teaches an array of courses, we focused in on one of his composition classes, which is what I'm taking with him right now. This course is an advanced writing course that explores rhetorical theory and applies this to issues in our modern society. We discuss the value of writing, the concept of ideology and ideological criticism, as well as moving away from normative thinking towards more structural approaches. I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody. Uh, today, I'm sitting down with Professor Tom Conway. Uh, I'm currently in a writing class with Tom Conway. And uh, yeah, it's a really exciting class. Definitely not a writing class that I've ever taken, like uh, nothing similar to that, actually. Um, so I sort of wanted to get into how you got into teaching what you do and like what department you teach in, some other courses that you might teach. Sure. So uh, I teach in the English department and I've been teaching there since uh, first as a graduate student and then on the faculty starting in 2005, I think as a graduate student and then moving to faculty, I think in 2007 uh, or 2008. Uh, been around long enough to forget the exact dates. So um, I studied uh, creative writing and that's what my terminal degree is in. Um, and with a focus on fiction. As I got on the faculty and uh, as a GTA, I was responsible for composition classes. So um, composition sort of is the foundation of the English department's relationship to all other majors and with our sort of core classes, everyone has to take composition. So there's just courses available in that. And, um, I first was trained to teach composition as a graduate student and uh, immediately found myself to be passionate about it. I actually applied to grad school and got into grad school for um, rhetoric and persuasion as well as creative writing. So um, I really sort of all English studies, literature, um, rhetoric, composition, uh, you know, creative writing, all of those sort of go, uh, come to me sort of quite naturally, both as a, a producer and a teacher. So um, I love them all. And uh, so that's how I sort of initially came to you know, teach these courses. Yeah. So I teach, and then I, every semester I teach an array of uh, mostly composition, because those, those are our most um, demanded courses throughout the university. Um, but I also teach, get to teach creative writing and literature. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I really did not know what to expect before taking like the composition course. Um, and it's definitely yeah. like a writing course, but it's almost, if not more, like a humanities course, like where you're discussing like yeah. important cultural issues and things like that. So that was like nice for me because I'm really interested in that sort of stuff. So I think it's cool to learn about those things through like the medium of writing, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have that, that's what I have in mind. Um, with an advanced writing course like this, you look at earlier versions of the course and uh, not just me, but, um, you know, administ administration at different levels. Why do we need um, a 300 level composition course? And students ask that question too. Uh, so to me that, um, by the time they come, students come to me in the upper division writing, they know how to sort of 
in a sense, sort of mimic. You know how in our class, students are always asking for like samples, right? And if students see samples, they can sort of copy it. And we learn that way. Human beings learn that way. They look to, you know, their parents or their elders or their older siblings, and they start to mirror those behaviors. And that so we can get some writing development done that way. But I think it stagnates if that's our only approach, where we have to learn not just um, how to take our turn into writing arguments that have been made before us. And that's what I think a lot of like uh, sort of lower division arguments or compositions or rhetoric tends to be. It's a repeat the rhetoric. It's your turn to sort of repeat it. So the, argu the arguments aren't new. The reasoning isn't new. Um, and so what you're learning is just, a, you know, the structure of arguments and you're just borrowing from other arguments that are made. So in this class, I try and sort of expand from that. And I do that by thinking about writing um, often differently than we've been taught to think about it. I think about it more philosophically. So to quote somebody specifically, that the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, when he talks about writing, he's actually talking about three things, writing uh, actual like, you know, hand to pen or fingers to keyboard. Right? He's also talking about uh, thinking, and he's also talking about speaking, essentially, right? And those things come together and combined to, for him, under the umbrella of writing. So when you're writing things, Zach, you're often combining those things. You're sort of talking it out either with yourself in dialogue form or with others, testing the ideas, maybe dialectically. You're also like thinking about what you're going to write, and, and then you're actually doing the writing. So combining those things together, then we have a chance to sort of embrace that process rather than just have the process of sort of essentially copying or memorizing the structure of arguments, what arguments have been made in what categories, and then repeating them. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. And it, it makes like perfect sense, actually, when you think about like, yeah, in those lower division writing courses, you're sort of like copying arguments. It's usually like, okay, choose one of these topics that there's already like two stances on and write as right. one of those stances. And in this class, it's definitely more of create your own argument. And then they're definitely more nuanced. They're not like one side or the other. Um, there's definitely a lot more that you need to consider. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, uh, we're trying to grow in terms of, it's it's not just in, you know, we, I know that you can make an argument by this point in your, you know, uh, educational career, or you wouldn't be in the class. Uh, but what, what kind, what can you add to arguments? That's where we're going, right? And, and to do that, we have to expand our critical thinking. So it's not just expressing what, our inheritance, but expressing our sort of creative, creativity in terms of being able to think in new ways and bring, being able to see in new ways, see issues that have been presented to us in that binary fashion as you're either this side or this side. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully we're expanding. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of to move on to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is the sure. importance of writing and sort of touching on what you're talking about, at least in my opinion, like for me, through this course and other courses where I'm forced to like write um, 
I think that I'm better able to think through my ideas. Like I actually can like, like I have to like grab all these thoughts and make sense of them and then put them out there. Like same with if you're speaking to someone in a discussion, whereas if you yeah. don't put it out there, they're just kind of like these jumbled up thoughts. I can't make sense of it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what um, is your, like, what do you think about the importance of writing? I know there's a lot to say there, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, to get started on that conversation in this won't surprise you, but perhaps your listeners that because uh, occasionally when I first mention it to students, it seems to surprise them. And that's to me, writing is power. And so everything that we do in the class, uh, what I have in mind is expanding students agency. And you know, by now what that means, that agency means power and our power to act in the world. And when we're uh, working on developing as writers, essentially we're working on developing our power in the world, our power to negotiate a world. Now we can simplify that and say that having writing talent will um, help you, give you the power to write a strong resume and that will give you the power to um, get a job, right? But that's very sort of reductionist and it looks at us not as full human beings, right? But as um, laborers that need jobs someday on capitalist markets, right? So my goal in this class is to sort of the importance of writing is to self-actualize, to increase our power to negotiate and understand the different worlds that we're going to have to face when we wake up and leave the comfort and safety of our beds and have to walk out the front door and negotiate a wider world of power that has determining power over us individually. So to me, that's why teaching writing is so exciting and so fulfilling because it's the only sort of real power in the world is your ability to sort of use rhetoric to negotiate a world. Yeah. Yeah. And like sharing your opinions and your thoughts on things like it's so important. You can talk to people, but that's really in your your close knit circle of people that you interact with on the day to day. But if you write something and put it out there, you know, it can reach a lot more people. Yeah, it can. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a in terms of expanding that agency and power, it's often an audience thing, right? That um, the audiences that you're accessing as an honor student, right? That comes with a little bit more power agency, right? Than um, a non-honor student, like the audiences that you're able to sort of access. And even this project and that kind of thing is representative of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And do you think um, now that things are sort of like in terms of like technology and social media, like there's a big emphasis on like other forms of media, like podcasts or like videos, things like that. Do you think that writing is going to go away or do you think that it's going to translate really well into those other mediums? Oh, I absolutely think it will translate well. I think that the power of rhetoric to me, right, essentially we can reduce that term to sort of you know, trying to have an effect with language um, and language is expansive for me, to, you know, uh, not just for me, but to, uh, it's just, it's not just sort of words on a page necessarily, but um, so 
if we look at the history of rhetoric as it relates to technological changes, rhetoric is very adaptable. It's always, um, no matter what the technological changes are, we still have to think about those rhetorical foundations. Uh, what's our purpose? Why are we doing things with words? Why are we doing a podcast or a YouTube video? Why this genre and how's this genre going to work? Are these words going to work with this audience? Um, so rhetoric moves with technologies. Certain things are going to, uh, you know, the, the pendulum of, you know, what's preferred in a moment and what's significant and meaningful in terms of like what genres and uh, that's going to always change. But those rhetorical foundations um, come with and they also help us navigate new technologies and understand them um, more than sometimes than other disciplines, which uh, yeah. have a harder time adapting. Yeah, definitely. I, it's really interesting to think of it that way. Cause I totally agree. And like, um, if anything, it'll be more accessible to people. I mean, like podcasts are free, like you have YouTube for free, like all of these different yeah. platforms where you can access things. And like, in terms of writing, I feel like that's, um, sort of more, less, less accessible, like as we move throughout this kind of period of time right now. Yeah. 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 I don't, I mean, other things seem to be changing too. That uh, I mean, a, a struggle that I've had teaching is over the you know uh, going on two decades is um, the students interact differently with texts, and certainly differently than me and how I grew up interacting with texts. And so assumptions that I could make 15 years ago about how an entire generation interacted with texts. You know, through the you know public education or other types, um, that changes, and so I have to change with that. And uh, and again, I think that the foundations of rhetoric are there and stay the same, uh, if the content and the technology change a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, to sort of move on uh, to the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, um, I'm sure our discussion about how important writing is will carry over into this, but um, I wanted to talk to you specifically about ideology and like the term ideology, like what that means in the context of rhetoric and what that means in like more of an academic context, because I seriously sure. didn't really know what ideology was. I like in modern, in like everyday terms, I thought of it as like a belief that someone holds. That's like a part of right. a larger group's belief, you know, but would you be able to sure. kind of shed some light on like what ideology is? Absolutely. Um, and first of all, not every, uh, you know, so many of our students at CSU have to take an upper division writing class, one of the COs, uh, 300s or 301s. And, uh, and uh, we, are, we approach it, instructors approach it, you know, much differently. So um, you might run into ideology in other classes, and, but you might not. So uh, it's definitely an interest of mine. Uh, I've developed as a thinker and a teacher the space between um, rhetoric uh, and literature and philosophy, which is a, I'm very much interested in. Um, I find when those combination between those ways of thinking come together in really strong and potent ways. And so ideology certainly is studied in literary studies, uh, literary criticism, 
it's studied in continental philosophy and it's uh, to, and it also is studied in composition studies. So within composition studies, and one of the ways I want to distinguish these upper division classes from our lower division classes is, uh, is critical theory and um, rhetorical theory. And that's, I'm not alone there. We're all trying to do that as a department, uh, introduce students to uh, the theoretical level. That happens in other colleges and other majors too. And probably you've experienced that as you've got into sort of your junior and senior years, um, you, there's more theory in all of the disciplines. Um, so that's one of the things that we're, get, we're trying to integrate and to make more mature arguers and make more mature compositions is the ability to integrate theory, right? Now, I th the reason that I do ideology is because it's a world increasing theory. It increases your world because it makes the worlds that you've been negotiating all your life, it makes them visible, right? So I often use the fish and water metaphor, right? So what sort of uh, cultural waters are we swimming in? What do they mean? Uh, what are the power relationships? A lot of that stuff gets taken for granted and is invisible. And it's also, it can become political very quickly. And so in earlier stages of education, there's a lot of incentive to stay away from it, to not make that sort of water visible. Um, but we're in college now, and if the universities mean anything, it means that we have to take a really fearless look at everything and try and sort of um, ask very critical, hard questions of, uh, in this case, belief systems or why we think the way we think or our worldviews. Um, and that can include examining the value of our worldviews, how they function, um, and the results of the, that function, right? Uh, so ideology as a type of rhetorical criticism, bringing that in, allows us, and the reason I do it first in the beginning of the semester, allows us to evoke a critical consciousness where we begin to sort of naturally ask questions that often we weren't encouraged to ask at earlier stages because of what I've said earlier, it can lead to controversy or uh, we start to crack some of the more uh, reliable um, illusions that our society sort of uh, uses and, uh, as support systems to understand the world. And once we start cracking those, it can, uh, cause angst to our students or they're not sure of the world that they've been told that they've been in, that sort of thing. So we do it first to raise the critical consciousness. So we have a heightened awareness about the world and the power structures that shape our worlds. And that, of course, is going to lead to our ability to make more meaningful arguments, arguments that can increase our power or increase the power of others. So that's a sort of basic answer to why uh, I start with ideology. But to get more at your question of what I ideology means, um, it's a, a system of ideas, right? That uh, um, just as in late stage capitalism, products are produced and 
you know, for about 100 years now doing technology, more products than we actually need. We talked about this in our class the other day, that planned obsolescence, I think that you might, you might have mentioned. That, um, we do, do we need 30 varieties of Doritos? That's just one particular like brand of junk food, right? And those 30 varieties are produced in labs and a lot of money in, is invested into them to make them uh, not just palatable, but addictive, right? And so using that Doritos as a metaphor, we often conflate our sense of freedom, uh, who we are in the world with the amount of products that are available to us to choose from. So the freedom to choose products to buy to sort of fill out our um, humanity. And what we're looking at is that Ideas are produced in the same way that Doritos are. Uh, they're produced by sort of power and they're often produced not in the sense of a, you know, a few like evil, cynical, um, you know, men with twisting mustaches and, and the Illuminati in a back room somewhere. No, is it, we inherit ideas um, from earlier generations that serve power and create hegemony, status quo, power dynamics that serve people in power, but don't necessarily serve everybody. So those become the dominant ideas, and that is uh, ideology dominant. So dominant ideology is that set of ideas that maintain status quo, power dynamics that benefit some and not all. The key, though, is that ideology tells those that are disempowered by it that indeed they are empowered by it in the same way that power-holding elites are empowered by it. So when we begin to look at that and ask questions, in what ways are we empowered by ideas, seeing ideas as products that are produced and produced in a certain way that they can be addictive or taste really good, but they might not be providing the nutrition that we actually need to fulfill our um, human potential at both the individual level and the level where we flourish together in a uh, social or community sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it really blows my mind when we're thinking about things like they're just everyday beliefs that we pretty much like the, the common majority of people like in our society will believe just all of these things. And to go back to your example about like the Doritos, it's like, like yeah. you were saying, like, you know, we have 30 flavors of Doritos and we think that's like one of the reasons we're like, America is so free. We have <laughs> all of these choices and all you could go to any store you want and buy these same things, you know, but in reality, we're like, we're sort of oppressed by that too. Like we think right. that that is freedom and we're told that that is freedom. So we never think about like, are we actually free? You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly when we do this kind of critical stuff, like resistance will come up at times and the resistance makes sense. Even after learning about ideology, it's not like, Oh, we're free from being dominated by ideology even holding ideas that actually we value, even though they oppress us and we have a sort of cognitive distance from understanding that. And that doesn't immediately go away just after we learn about it and, and then do that sort of uh, first assignment. So some of the resistance that we've seen, like when we look at, you know, ask critically about the social media we engage with or uh, 
or the culture industry, the entertainment industry, you know, something like a Marvel. And we end up sort of getting very sort of resistant to seeing how this might be bad medicine or bad ideas, right? Or it might help us sort of escape from actually being free human beings. So um, it might diminish our, our freedom, but we start to like get upset at that idea and, and become defenders of the very thing that might oppress us. So um, it's an interesting process, but definitely one with a lot of tension. But I, as a teacher, I sort of thrive on that. Um, I often think how it'd be, it would just be easier to sort of take a different, less critical approach, or, you know, just teach a, you know, what a good sentence is and, and not uh, bring in any sort of social justice or larger critical sort of theory. Um, but I, it wouldn't be very fun for very long. So yeah. you have to yeah. take the risk, I think, meaningful. Definitely. I, I think it is important. I was um, on another podcast I did um, with a professor in the philosophy department. His name is Sean Brady. Um, he is a brilliant guy. Um, and his whole like idea yeah. behind teaching as well is very similar in the sense of like you want people to learn how to be critical thinkers. Like that's the big the big yeah. takeaway of his class is like, can you think critically about things that are like that were presented to as being surface issues, like controversial is issues in society. He'll present them as like, they seem like these surface level things, like either you're this or you're that. And then when you really take a deep dive, like there's so much more nuance. And when you're exploring those, like those nuances in these things that are happening in society, like that's where the fun is, you know, because that's when you're really yeah. like, that's where the challenge is and that's where the discomfort is. But you wouldn't want to be like comfortable in your classes all the time. That seems like pretty boring. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a sign that you're, you're not learning very much or you're just learning at the sort of foundational levels of sort of memorization and regurgitation, which uh, um, is safe, but doesn't, um, uh, doesn't allow for the type of growth that we want to get at. You need those things. This is, we need to memorize foundations. But you don't want to stay there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's an honor too, to be mentioned with uh, Sean Brady, who I know, I know uh, and work with um, on committees. Uh, and yeah. I enjoy the way, the way that he thinks. Uh, yeah, I'm glad yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, just like thinking about that, too, is like, do you, it, it must be a cool experience to teach people from all different majors um, around the university, yeah. because like, I'm sure people have very differing um, experiences in terms of like, engaging in like critical thinking about like controversial issues. Yeah, I, I enjoy that very much. One for the challenge. When I some of my classes are mostly English majors, and the benefits to that is they're they're already, you know, that preaching to the choir metaphor. They're sort of already bought into the sort of foundational values of the humanities and an English department. Where working with students from other majors, um, there's some resistance coming into the class, like oh, this is a distraction from my major and I don't really want to be here. So I, I love the challenge of sort of winning them over to the value of the course. Not always able to do that, but I think I'm relatively successful there. And then as you were pointing out that, the more value from that situation is 
the diversity in thinking, you know, um, the type of topics that I get because students are allowed to choose their own topics, you know, meeting certain requirements of the assignment. So, um, so the way that we think in the sciences and the social sciences is uh, um, allowing for that diversity. And I, te I teach a version of this class, uh, CO301A, which is uh, writing in the humanities. And I often feel, I love that too, but I often feel a little confined there uh, that we're um, with the humanities focus that I feel lifted from that in terms of we don't just have to focus on, even though I love the humanities, uh, students just bringing ideas from all those different areas. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and there's definitely things to um, look at in all the disciplines. You know, there's definitely things to take deeper looks at and in, in everything. So yeah, the way these different epistemological systems inform each other and their different approaches. Uh, and I, I love when they're in communication. And, um, I love seeing when students uh, have that sort of matrix moment that they often, I don't know, the matrix is still culturally relevant movie. And so can I use it as a metaphor about their, when things come together for the protagonist in terms of they're seeing their different worlds connect and everything starts to flow. Yeah. Students yeah. Get, often get that in my class where like all of their other classes sort of start to come together, the different theories and, and sort of mesh. And, and my class often works as a place that they can express it all together. Uh, and I love that when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It is a good uh, skill to have too, of like building that like synthesis, like sort of, you know, like yeah. being able to pull things from various uh, classes or experiences and like, seeing that connection is I think a really cool um, exercise to do so. Yeah, and that, I love that you use the word synthesis and the key to synthesis is when you bring something from over here and bring something from over here, you put them together in this context, something new happens. That's the key to synthesis. And, uh, and when that, when that, when we have synthesis, it's just, there's nothing better because you know that growth is happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of to move on now to um, to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is uh, this is like very specific to an assignment in your class, but I think we can talk about it in a way that is more general, so anyone who's listening could understand this. But Absolutely. Basically, the assignment is like to do a diagnostic practice about a cultural yep. issue, or as we call them maladies, but it's basically yeah. just something we see in our culture that might be not going so well, um, or could right. be posing an issue to us. And we're sort of attacking it um, uh, from a from a way of like, almost like a medical diagnosis. Am I like getting that right? You are, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so um, I think that's like a very unique way to think about cultural issues because a lot of times it's like we just sit in a class and you discuss them and in this it's um I don't want to say formulaic but the structure is helpful right yeah so could could you give us a little bit of information on like what this process is like sure yeah so the diagnostic process essentially uh, I I'm borrowing this from a philosopher at Berkeley named Hans Sluga. And Hans Sluga is looking at the tradition, the intellectual tradition uh, in the West, essentially. Uh, and he 
and like a lot of others before him, noticed that this big shift, um, essentially in the 19th century. And it has its roots earlier and often what is referred to as the, the dark enlightenment. And that's where you have, uh, during the enlightenment, you have certain thinkers like uh, Spinoza uh, and uh, Descartes, right? Who are um, to varying degrees challenging, uh, Kant is another one, challenging the tradition before them with varying degrees of trying to maintain uh, uh, some sort of you know, continuity with that tradition. Certain thinkers like a Spinoza or a Nietzsche, Nietzsche especially, are, are blowing it up altogether, right? Like the, the tradition, they have no sort of desire to, to stay loyal to it necessarily. Um, but trying to honor the past, but also challenge it and the problems that have come up from having us think in certain ways, right? And if we think of thinking, just to, connecting it back to ideology, ideology sort of whispers to us sort of what to think. And the tradition whispers to us how to think. And so we've often thought in this normative tradition where we try to solve problems, particularly at the sort of social, political, economic level, with normative thinking that sort of looks for universal ways to solve them. So the, even our best thinkers, even going back to the sort of Greece, they knew uh, uh, they were aware of structural problems. Um, and they but they often, particularly going with sort of Socrates and Plato, one of the big keys that they emphasize is sort of individual behavior. This is how the individual is going to sort of normalize themselves in order to sort of normalize a, wor a world. So in Plato, for instance, the normative thinking of combining what a just society looks like into just soul and that those things can be normed together. And the just soul or the just character can come about through um, sort of overcoming uh, the influence your desires have on you. So putting your desires in check and just as we can do that as an individual, then society can do that too. So by the time we get to uh, the 19th century, the philosopher, 20th century philosopher Paul Ricoeur noticed this about some of those big 19th century thinkers, Marx and Nietzsche and Freud in particular. Uh, he called them the sort of hermeneutics of suspicion or the school of suspicion where they began to use their critical thinking to sort of attack in a way the, tr the normative tradition, realizing it's uh, as, is inept, that it's not going to, uh, we're never going to get there with normative thinking. We're never going to solve the problems that we want to solve. So we think about, you know, what Marx is object objecting to. He's objecting to sort of people declaring victory, humans declaring victory is, hey, we found the best economic system that is possible for human beings to have. And, you know, they stuck a flag in that sort of economic system as sort of victory. And as soon as they do so, they've created an illusion and they've marginalized all the problems in that economic system and sort of the consequences. They've tried to hide them under the bed or throw the dirty dishes in the stove and put them out of the way. And a thinker like Marx comes along and says, no, we need to sort of diagnose these 
And he goes to the values. If we value these things, right, freedom, uh, equality, uh, community, then we need to think about um, how this normative thinking, normalizing a perfect economic system that sort of we present as flawless, is actually has uh, consequences, side effects, um, to use our you know, medical me uh, metaphor. So that thinking sort of changed in the 19th century and then led to the history of intellectual thought in the 20th century, modernism, and followed by postmodernism. So we can look at diagnostic thinking as um, more adequately equipped to embrace the complexity of modern structural problems, to actually see them for what they are, to overcome the sort of illusions that we want to succumb to in order to assuage our, our fears and you know, make the, the world a sort of feel like a better place. Um, so in other words, embracing appearances. And the diagnostic uh, type of thinking uh, can more adequately solve problems, I, I guess it is how I would sort of summarize that. Yeah. So that's yeah. a start. Is that, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really uh, great way to introduce that. And I think, too, um, something that's interesting for me is like, when you talk about like the normative tradition of thinking like that is definitely um, still very prevalent today. You know, that is like what, what I'm oh, yeah. used to at least. Yeah. Right. But it's very liberating to hear someone say, you know, actually there are these structural problems that um, that are in place here. That's, that's inhibiting the individual from, you know, flourishing or whatever that might be. Right. And yeah. that is, I think there's people want to feel liberated in that they can control their own lives and their own destiny and take responsibility for things that happen to them, which is good. But there is some right. sort of deception going on there too, that they can completely change everything about their life just by themselves. And I think um, as a society, like we're sort of realizing that on a larger level, that there are systematic issues going on um, that right. are larger than the individual. So it's kind of a coincidence that yeah. like in this class, we're talking about it now, but society, I think, is sort of coming around to this in some respects. I think you're right. Yeah, it's becoming a sort of more common way of thinking and way of speaking. And so people um, recognize it more. It, to me, it goes back to ideology and why we start that first. So one of the ways that uh, our culture tends to raise its children uh, is by emphasizing individual agency, right? So um, we could see in a school, for instance, that students' behavior is largely influenced uh, by um, structural influences, right? The way that the school is sort of designed and, uh, you know, when recess is compared to like um, how long a human body can sit still at a certain age, uh, but in, instead of like being aware of that, we often just focus on uh, students' individual behavior, disconnected from the determining structures that uh, we can predict, like when Johnny is going to sort of act out in school, right? It's going to be, a, well, he hasn't had food in this long, and he's been sitting still for this long, and this is the window where he, uh, he's he's going to act out. We know it's going to happen, 
right? But uh, instead, we're willing to punish Johnny for acting out at that moment rather than look at how we can change things structurally. We're you're right that I think that people are starting to think more structurally. It's been in academia for a while, definitely since uh, the 19th century, earlier than that, but where we realize just how determining it is, um, this uh, larger you know, systematic thinking and, and structural thinking. Uh, but you might have heard, Zach, while you were you know, in high school you know, a few years back, that when we think about changing start times at uh, high schools, because we've caught up scientifically and realized that the teenage body has different sort of biorhythms, like when they thrive during a day, how much sleep that they need. And often that doesn't conform to the way we've structured it as adults. We want to wake up at this time and we want to work at this time and so on. Might not work for teenagers who's biologically, they're sort of different, right? So we say structurally, let's change those start times to allow that particular age group to thrive. Let them sleep in a little bit, start high school uh, later. That's an example, you know, to, to trying to solve a, um, a problem, both looking at individual agency, how students sort of behave, and, but also seeing that it's related to structural dominance, the way that we've structured time, the way that we've just structured the places. And um, I love when I see that type of uh, problem solving. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to see when things that you're talking about, like, you know, specifically like academic setting kind of reach out into the real world. Cause that's yeah. really, that's like what I think is important, I guess, is that like yeah. people are learning things in like academia and then taking that out and using that stuff in the real world. Cause not everyone is gonna go to college. Not everyone has the opportunity or, um, you know, there are things that are, are in the way of that. And so I think everyone could do like their, part of sort of sharing these uh, ideas outside of that. Yeah, I, I think that should be at the forefront of our uh, teaching values and our teaching purposes is that we're not just sort of, um, you know, teaching theory as an end in itself, but it, uh, which we can do sometimes, I think, you know, it can be worth like reading a book just for that book. It doesn't have to do other things. Um, but for the most part, what we're doing here is trying to have meaningful lives and making a, the things we do in the classroom expand out to that is the way to sort of self-actualize, uh, to fully realize like who we are yeah. uh, and what we can and can't do. So to me, it, it all goes together nat uh, naturally, but it's my, it, that's in my head. So it's key for you know, professors instructors to sort of help students to make those connections, especially in a class where um, students are out of their major and have to take a class for it, uh, you know, to check boxes on their, uh, on the path to their degrees. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good level of self-awareness to have, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So to sort of wrap up something that I like to do, um, not to put you on the spot, but if you, if you had one piece of advice or one message that you wanted people to get out of listening to this or just something you want to share with people, um, would you give that to us? Yeah. So, um, are you talking about like in the context of, uh, 
navigating academia or uh, something larger or um yeah i think i think uh navigating academia would be good i think my target audience for this is definitely like students so or people that are thinking about entering college something like that yeah yeah um so certainly this and the answer to this question uh, has some recency bias um but uh what we were just talking about, I think, is really key, and that is sort of seeing how we don't we don't have full control right over the structure that is CSU. That larger powers are saying we want students to take A, B, and C, and in an agency way, uh, students always don't always have full control over that, right? But they do have control uh, uh, over the. Ex Experience that they have in terms of like attitude, right? And so I think if you're in the world that's trying to figure out, okay, how can this help me rather than deciding ahead of time, oh, this couldn't possibly help me or this, this is too hard. And those types of like resistance sort of uh, stories we tell ourselves that are you know, full of sort of resentment. So I think having that open mind that, uh, each of the, we don't know what exactly the learning experience is. I'm often telling my students this, uh, we design a learning experience you know, through a syllabus and creating a context. But I, I never know what the learning experience is going to be for my students. So imagine a student that sort of has some personal difficulties and sort of um, misses some classes and comes back in it is able to integrate back in and sort of figure it out but that's a great sort of learning experience even though it's it's not the one i wanted for them i would like them to not have had any problems but the world doesn't give us that so just being in that sort of um everything can be turned into this is an opportunity to, for me to have an experience and to figure out the learning from it right that's that's what we have to do figure out what can I learn from this? And to me, I have to do that. Uh, it helps me navigate the world in terms of you realize you have to do things sometimes that you don't enjoy as part of your job, right? It's even the best jobs, the do what you love jobs, they have elements to them that are sort of tedious and sort of soul sucking, but reconfiguring it to be like, okay, well, what can I learn from this? You know, or how can it help me? Um, I think is uh, just a more more uh, valuable, productive, and overall joyful way of being in the world. So that would be one thing. And another thing I would say uh, related to that is just um, presence and proximity, like putting yourself in places. Uh, life happens to those that sort of show up. And um, there is sort of a flippancy that can happen in this particular context. Uh, the way that you see a lot of you, uh, you're not one of these. I, I don't think you've missed a, a class, but uh, it can seem like not a big deal to sort of not show up for things and get into those habits of whether I show up or not, uh, whether I'm present for something is, is not a big deal. Uh, and I think it is. I think that uh, um, being there for ourselves and being there for our communities is uh, essential and we should not take that responsibility lightly. So yeah. I, I, I sound like, I hope I don't sound like an old curmudgeon, but um, I believe in presence and proximity, putting in yourself into contexts and giving yeah. yourself to them. Yeah. 
Yeah, I could not agree more. And I think uh, in some ways that relates to the saying of like, you make your own luck, you know, like you, the opportunities will come if you put yourself there, you know, so. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for uh, sitting down with me and talking. This was a great time. So. You bet, Zach. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem.